I'm Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into real cases. The content may be triggering or inappropriate for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to another episode of Crime Curious. I'm Charnel. And I'm Amber. And to conclude our cringeworthy couples week, we decided to go really, really big and bring you what is quite possibly the most hated couple in the world to anyone who knows of their unspeakable crimes. This case took place in the UK, and I can tell you that they are very well known as the most evil woman and the most hated man in all of Britain. They really, truly are. Mm-hmm. And I just want to apologize to uh, any listeners that thought they were getting like a good Valentine's Day special here because yeah. these nope. cases really suck. For sure. For sure. So please don't get excited in any way. This is a horrible case. I do think that it's really important for the five victims to tell their story. I agree. Today, we're going to tell you the story of five precious children who fell victim to the sinister acts of Ian Brady and Myra Hindley. These murders became known as the Moors Murders because of the expansive and beautiful Saddleworth Moors in Manchester, located in northwest England, and it was the place where four of the five victims were found, correct? Correct, yes. There is one victim that has still remains unfound, and we will get to it. And if we do the victim's story justice today, then I can promise you that you're not going to soon forget them. This is a case that's always stayed with me after I first learned about it, which is why I wanted to bring it to our customer or customers, to our <laughs> listeners' attention as well, because I think that it's really going to stick with people. It will never leave me, that's no. for sure. We are always forthcoming about information in our episodes because we never want to cause trauma to our beloved listeners. So please be advised that this case is about the murder of five children. Not everyone can handle kid cases. So I, and I will, when we get to each murder, I am going to give you a trigger warning. But also, I'm not going to read transcripts from the court hearings um, as those were traumatic and some of them haven't even been released to the public. I'm only going to give you information that's necessary to the story for these victims to keep their memory alive and to possibly help bring awareness so we could re- um, someone could keep doing the efforts to recover the one victim that has not been recovered as well. Okay. Okay, grab the strongest liquor that you have within reach, snuggle your favorite pet so it'll help keep your blood pressure down. Let's get started. Also, why the heck did we decide to record this in the morning? This is our first morning recording, by the way. We needed to do this in the evening when it was appropriate to drink while we record. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Who says it's not appropriate? Just saying. Unfortunately, we have things to do later. That is true. If I could take an afternoon nap today, I would have (laughs) prepared mimosas for us just to get through this. But we have crap we have to do. And Amber, you can't leave, so stop trying. I see you. I do try to leave frequently (laughs) during the cases. Sorry. This is your job. All right. I'm here. I'm All right. It. I'm going to give you guys a brief over two of these two before they met, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because I don't want you guys to even think of them as humans with families and people who love them because they don't deserve it. And honestly, they didn't give their victims that courtesy. Yeah, I have to say that usually with cases, I like to give background because it does help to explain, you know, okay, this is what happened. And then there's this kind of remorse for for them and what they went through. But this one? Nope. No. no. I don't I don't even want to paint a picture of poor Myra or poor Ian. Yeah, exactly. Well, and honestly, there's really not a whole lot to paint there because they did not have the bad childhood to blame for their actions like so many other serial killers. Yeah, they really didn't. I mean, when you look at our previous episode with Otis Tool, they had very traumatic horrific childhoods. childhoods. Yes. This this is nothing like this. Their life in general is pretty unfucking remarkable and they were just horrible human beings because they wanted to. I do want to shout out my references right from the beginning because I used three books for this reference. I do recommend them to you guys. I'm not going to say before each comment like I usually do because I'm not going to quote the books directly, but I just feel like it would really break the flow of things up if I was constantly like, and then this book, they have very long titles. Yeah. yeah. So I just want you guys to know the three books that will be referenced in our show notes. Uh, Ian Brady, The Untold Story of the Moors Murders by Dr. Alan Keatley. 
It's spelled nightly, though, just so you know. Evil Relations, The Man Who Bore Witness Against the Moors Murders by David Smith. That name is going to come back up. Brady and Henley, Genesis of the Moors Murders by Fred Harrison. I'm actually really grateful you won't be saying those the whole time because they are a mouthful. (laughs) They really are. It's too much. So hopefully you guys understand. That's where all my information has come from. I definitely recommend the book by Dr. Alan Keatley. It was a good one. He used a lot of writings from Ian. I won't be quoting Ian. I know you can probably listen to some other podcasts even that have quoted him. And I'll explain that in a little while, why I didn't feel like he needed quoted. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually would like to read David Smith's book after all of this. It's on my list. Yes, it's a good one. Mm -hmm. It is. And we'll, we'll talk about that later, later, but it's, it's a different perspective. And after reading about the book, it kind of made me think I would really like to know like what he's Mm -hmm. went through. Mm -hmm. So it's it's on my list to pick up. Ian Fuckface Brady was actually born Ian Fuckface Duncan Stewart <laughs> in Glasgow. That's his official True name birth now. name. Yep, that's <laughs> what it is now. He was born January 2nd, 1938, as if anybody gives a single fuck. His mother was named Margaret Stewart. His dad was said to have died three months before he was born, but Ian actually doesn't know if this is true or if his mom just wanted to spare him from the pain of knowing that they were abandoned. Mm, His mom was a very good mom. She was a very appropriate mom. And she makes a lot of really good decisions to try to make Ian be as successful in life as as she possibly could. Mm -hmm. And he fucks it up royally. Boy, does he ever. (laughs) Ian's mom struggled to make ends meet. She knew that financially she really couldn't support him, right? So she put out an ad asking for someone to adopt her son, but keep her in the picture. So now enters Mary and John Sloan. They responded to the ad and they said, we can do that. They did. They had a wonderful relationship. They adopted Ian. So he actually became Ian Fuckface Sloan. And then, but his mom ate dinner with them like every night. She spent every weekend with them. Okay. So, so it's like family, she couldn't support him with all the finances and the needs, but she wanted to be and she, with him. But she emotionally supported him. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yep. was a huge part of his life. I give credit to the Sloans because they also essentially took her in. I mean, she didn't live there, but they were bringing her into their family as well. And for being 1938, That's a lot for a, a couple to take on. Like, yeah, we'll that, adopt your child and you can come over every night and eat dinner with us. Yeah. At one point, she even broke up with a man because he lived too far away from Ian and Ian didn't want to move. I mean, she she broke off a relationship. Like, we, I've worked with many clients that I cannot say we're they willing don't to do choose, the same. Yeah, they don't choose the child every time. Mm-hmm. That is for sure. Unfortunately, Ian was exceptionally intelligent. And you'll see why I say unfortunately to that later. He went to a school for above average intelligent pupils and he was your average run-of-the-mill bully as a kid. He used to even make other kids fight, which I think is just so gross. But something that you need to know about him is that he is extremely narcissistic and showed those tendencies very early on. I was going to say, it seems like he really started doing that at an early age where he would get people to do yes. things for, for him, him. Mm-hmm. prey on them. Uh-huh. And he loved it. Yes. yes. So he was a thief, something that he enjoyed all of his life for no other purposes than the pleasure of it. Sometimes he would break in, him and his group of friends would break into houses and never steal anything. They just liked the thrill of doing it. He also carried a knife around with him and was in trouble with the courts as a teen on three ac- occasions, twice because of his breaking and entering, and then once because he threatened his girlfriend with his little knife because she went to a dance. I don't even know if she went to the dance with another boy or she was just seen talking at a dance with another boy, but he didn't like it. So he threatened her and she was like, oh, hell no. And he ended up back in the court system for that. Some sources will tell you that Ian liked to torture animals as a child, but this is actually something that Ian adamantly denies. And you're going to learn that although he is a complete fuckface, he's not a liar. His above average intelligence really plays into how he is, he makes no qualms about who he is, what, where he stands in life and on his theories on certain things like life and death. He has tremendous love and affection for animals. 
Which is really hard to believe with as it cruel is, and heartless you know, as he is. But I've we've done I've done research on a lot of serial killer cases though that loved their animals. I can empathize. I like animals more than people. I'm not gonna lie, you guys. But I not to with this that. point. Not to the point where I feel like it's okay to to take a human life, but not take an animal life. I, I don't I don't have that in me. But I found this story really disturbing. But it also shows how, why I believe that he really didn't torture animals. When he was younger, he saw a horse be put down. And it, it was really traumatic for him. He bawled about it. He remembered looking into the horse's eyes. I mean, he describes it in detail. Later in life, he was literally just walking like underneath a railroad pass by himself. Something triggered the memory of that horse dying. And he became so enraged that he just stabbed a man right there. In the street. Wow. He didn't even check to see if the man was alive or dead. He felt like in that moment, he had avenged the horse. Something that had happened years and years before. So that was like his justice for the horse? Yeah, because he had just become triggered and was angry all over again about that horse being put down. That, I think, just really shows how much he preferred animals to humans, that he could justify taking a human life because a human took this animal's life years and years and years ago. Mm -hmm. Forget about the fact that they're not connected. That poor man that he stabbed had nothing to do with the damn horse. He became Ian Brady when he was back in the court system for more thieving and ordered by the court to stay out of Glasgow. He got to live with his mother and her husband at the time, Patrick Brady. He and his stepdad had a great relationship, which is how he became Ian Brady. Okay, now remember, he is an extreme narcissist. He had a decent childhood. He had a strong support system, a lot of normal adults who loved him. And he was bisexual. He was also an atheist. And he said from a very early age that he never bought into religion. Now, Myra Hindley was not above average intelligence. Honestly, she's a basic white girl that ends up having fangirl vibes for Ian. We're going to come back to that. She was born on July 23rd, 1942, so she's four years younger than Ian Fuckface. I spare no remorse when I tell you that she is by far one of the ugliest women that I have ever had to bear witness to. So ugly. Also something we're going to get back to. Her mom was a good mom. Her dad was away at the war. And she and her sister Maureen, she has a younger sister Maureen, that actually lived with her grandmother and her mom until their dad returned. When dad returned from the war, they moved just a couple of blocks away from grandma so that they could live with mom and dad, but she was right, you know, grandma was still right there. Her dad was an abusive alcoholic, which is something that grandma and mom actually saved them from a lot. They had arranged a plan where Myra and Maureen would have dinners with mom and dad, but they'd sleep at grandma's house because dad would go to the pub, get drunk, come home, and be abusive. There was so some good strategies the from, there. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Kept the kids from being at home with him at night. Yes. She was taught how to box by her father, who was a champion boxer in the military, which is just what we need for her to learn how to be violent and to be praised for it. She was known in school as, like, this. she's the person that you don't fuck with. I could see that with her, just the way she was, like, built and... I know. I think she was probably supposed to be a man, and at the last minute, God was like, here's a vagina, (laughs) but... I've already done most of the work to make you a man. Yeah, Yeah. she did have like a more, do I say bulky? I want to say maybe bulky look. She's big boned, but not in a flattering way. I don't know. And I'm purposely being judgy. I am. Oh, 100%. We're allowed to be for serial killers. Mm -hmm. She was also fiercely religious and wanted to save herself for marriage, something that I find really funny later when she rapes children. It's hard to wrap my brain around that, knowing what she becomes. Yeah. That she started out, despite the violence, but somewhat, it sounds like she had, like, some decency to her. I think she, yeah, she started out with a good start. And I'm gonna put my two cents in about, about her in just a second. Let's get to how these two monsters end up meeting. Myra got a job as a typist in January of 1961 at Millwoods, where Ian was also employed. And I will say she had a job before this. When she was like 17, 18, her first job, it was paid in cash. We don't remember those days, but apparently that was the thing they used to do. Good old cash. (laughs) Yeah, her cash paycheck. And she's going home. Well, she came back to work the next day and bawling that her first paycheck had been stolen from her. She lost the envelope, whatever. So all the employees pitched in to 
give her give a check. Her a check. And then she was dumb enough to try to do that again two weeks later, and they caught on to, oh, you're just a lying. They're like, bitch, please. Yes, you're a lying bitch. Right from the early on, we see lies and manipulation, which okay. is something that yeah. she carries on the rest of her it's life. Started, yeah, they're starting to show through now. So she gets this typist job in January of 1961 at Millwoods. And here's where we're going to circle back to that fangirl state. Ian did not give Myra the time of day at all. She was as ugly as the inside of a skunk's ass. Okay? <laughs> she really was. She really, really was. <laughs> but, now, if I remember right, too, Ian didn't notice her at all no. upon meeting her, but she was instantly, like, just that's, head over heels. That's my next sentence. Myra said it was love at first sight for her. So she is just immediately like, oh. Mm -hmm. The lights yes. shining down. Yes. Here is this man with his bouffant dew or whatever. <laughs> Did you see his hair? Like, what is that fucking called? I don't know. I would it like was, it to be a bouffant. It bouffant. <laughs> That's what women do. Jesus. I'm sorry. I'm a social worker. Can I am we not... just call it a bouffant, though, from now on? Just picture this big-ass hair on this man. It was bigger than it should have been for the time. I agree. I don't remember what the heck it was. Oh, some sort of quaff. Anyway, he <laughs> had yeah, going on. And he's not a good-looking dude. It's. I mean, this isn't a Ted Bundy situation. He's just your average dude. He was really tall scrawny. and skinny. Yeah, he's scrawny. Nothing to him. But to each zone. I mean, it oh, takes all yeah. kinds. I know that. Nothing though. against scrawny guys. But again, right. being judgy purposely because these two really suck. Yes. Myra also keeps a diary at work. Of course she does. At work. Who the fuck keeps a diary at work? In her little desk. And I shit you not, the very first entry was, quote, Ian looked at me today, end quote. Can you imagine? <laughs> he She's looked a, at me. an adult. Ian looked at me today. Myra, have some fucking self-respect. Have you no dignity? None. None. It's gone. The desperation. Oh, it, yeah, which comes becomes a big part in a minute. Mm -hmm. So she continues to write these diary entries. And finally, on July 27th, uh, yeah, July 27th, I wrote of 16 and I meant 61. So once again, cool, Charnel. <laughs> it took Ian years and years and years to finally notice her. Good Lord. So many years. It did. Anyway, July 27th, of 1961, if you remember, she started in January. So literally six months into working there, she and Ian spoke for the first time, according to her diary. So she's been logging these for things six for six months. She has been pining after him secretly for six months, just like watching him walk by her desk pathetically. Yeah, nothing says I love you more than being totally ignored for the first six yeah, months. Yeah, it took six months yeah. for him to finally... Ian actually later wrote in his um, book with Dr. Knightley, uh, sorry, it's hard for me, when you see it written, it looks like Knightley, but it's Keatley, that he didn't pay any attention to any women at work. Like, none of them. I, I, he was bisexual. Mm -hmm. I think that he preferred men. I mean, he wrote, like, I didn't give her any notice, because I didn't give any woman there any notice. So you may be wondering, well, how the fuck do they get together then? I'm wondering. <laughs> I bet you are. <laughs> this now, was actually a part I didn't research because I did the last part, okay. so I really don't know how they met. All right, we'll so. grab your popcorn honey. Here we go. <laughs> Let me grab a box. Myra put on scandalous clothing and bright colors on her lip flesh. Lip flesh? She did. She did. Okay. She peroxide her hair blonde. Okay. She really tried to start getting herself looking different, thinking that that would maybe get his attention. So this was all planned to still get his attention. I yes, I I believe so. There are some differencing differencing accounts of when she actually dyed her hair, but she started dressing differently and wearing lipstick and mm -hmm. doing those and makeup and trying to what's the Catch old saying eye. that you can't put lipstick on a pig or something like that. <laughs> I do love your polish. Turd you can't polish a turd. You can't. But she was trying. Can really I just hard. say with the pictures I've seen Myra with dark hair mm -hmm. and with as a blonde, mm -hmm. and that is a lot of peroxide. Oh yeah, her hair was dark. I can't believe her hair didn't fall out. I know. I Same. mean, it was bright. She wanted to be noticed. Also, a fun fact later. Ian talks about how much he hated her hair color. He also ends up really having a hard on for Maureen, 
who looks a lot like Myra, but has dark hair mm-hmm. and a better hairstyle. So he really. didn't even like the blonde hair that mm-hmm. she worked so hard to get. Right. So what happens is, is after they start talking, basically Myra becomes anything that Ian wants her to be, which is a doting companion. Now, remember, he's a narcissist. So mm-hmm. anyone that's willing to give him that much attention and devotion, he's going to gobble up. Mm-hmm. Ian, again, was highly intelligent. So he really liked to read. He liked to discuss philosophy. And basically... Myra, who did not do those things before, started doing them. So now they've got this this thing in common. They spent a lot of time in the library. They spent a lot of time just reading books out loud with one another Mm -hmm. and discussing philosophy. So we have a codependent and a narcissist, which (laughs) is historically the most perfect partnership of all times. Yes, yeah, exactly. So she's just molding into everything that he or she thinks that he wants. Or Right here, you guys might be thinking, okay, so whatever Myra does, she actually just does it because that's what Ian wants. No, no, don't give her that much credit here, you guys. There are recordings that we will get to that prove that she was just as sadistic and into what they were doing as Brady was. Yeah, I struggle with that part. And I know we'll get into all of those details later. There's a lot of speculation that she wouldn't have gone to the extremes yes. without him. And I just, the part that I question is she had the capacity to go along with such horrific things. I don't believe yeah. it was just him influencing her. And she had plenty of time to leave the They had an open relationship. They were not exclusive to one another. She took other lovers. He took other lovers. They didn't even really officially live together. She had her own home with her grandma. He lived with his parents at the time that these murders happened. Because they're young, you guys. When the murders happened, he's 25 and she's 23. Mm -hmm. Or 22, almost 23. She had plenty of options to stop and to never do what she did. As their love blossomed, they started staying with one another a lot in June 1963. So they would basically just kind of bounce between Myra's house that she lived with her grandmother. Remember Granny? Yes. Granny, like she was really close to her grandma. And then Ian's house where he lived with his parents. They had decided that marriage was not something that they believed in. And in fact, now by 1963, so they've been, they met two years ago, Myra is now an atheist. And she was no longer saving herself from wouldn't, it. Wouldn't you know it? Right. They got a dog named Puppet, which I think is super creepy and maybe even goes a little bit to how Ian liked to treat people like his little puppets. Hmm. Maybe that's where the name came in. I Perhaps. don't know. But it is. It's just a bad name for a dog. I'm probably going to read something later that's going to be like, no, they saw a play and there was a character named Puppet and they thought <laughs> it was cute. You know, I was probably looking way too deep into that. Anyway. They especially liked to go out to the Saddleworth Moors with Puppet and take photos. Photos that later would be used to try and help locate their victims. On July 12th, 1963, they had pre-planned every detail, you guys, because this all had started with a philosophy of planning the perfect murder. And Ian was the headmaster in planning because that's something that he wanted to get away with. He thought they could do this the rest of their lives. That was his intention. So he even created documents that were like checklists. He called it a forensic checklist. Check. Did we do this? Did we do that? Leave no evidence. He had rules. They had a secret system between the two of them. He wrote out the whole plan. Like I said, he had the checklists so that they wouldn't leave any forensic evidence. Basically, he started with like fight club rules. And what's the first rule of fight club? You don't, you don't talk about fight club. See, clubs. even Amber knows. <laughs> She's not in one that I know of. Well, I can't talk about it <laughs> if I am. That's so true. I might be in one, but we can't talk about it. I'm not sure. <laughs> Give me a signal. But for them... There's where not only do you not talk about it, and we'll see how they relive it later to anyone other than themselves, but you also could not have any connection whatsoever to the victims. Okay, they live where they're at is not a horribly large place. Everybody knows everybody else. Kind of sounds like our town. Mm-hmm. Okay, small town. Yep. Ian wanted it so that they could never be questioned in a missing person investigation. So this was very carefully planned. Oh, it is by far the biggest premeditation you've ever seen in a case. He had picked the moors as where they were going to commit most of the murders, but also where they would hide the bodies because they are vast. And when I say vast, you guys, I am talking about 
thousands of acres. Yeah, they're huge. They are. They're beautiful. Mm-hmm. But they are gigantic, and they could never, ever, ever search all of it to try to find. Yeah. They are beautiful, but they do have an eerie feel to 100%. them. 100%. And it's very, like, windy out there, from what I understand, from what I was reading. It gets very cold. It's a lonely place. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason why it feels so lonely and so heavy is because of how large it really is. Some of it's swampland. Some of it is just like these rolling hills. Yeah, yeah. It goes on for miles. It's rocky. Yeah. When you look up pictures of it, and we will post pictures of all the victims and the moors on our Instagram and Facebook, it does look like a very eerie place as well. Ian also took anything that could be incriminating against them, and he kept it in luggage at the Manchester train station in the lost luggage corral. He actually had a rule that they had to destroy everything and anything. I'm talking the murder weapon. They used a different shovel every time to bury their victims because they would burn everything. The clothes they were wearing, they would burn them. That was part of his forensic checklist. He wanted no evidence to be left. But if they did keep something, because serial killers do that... Mm -hmm. It had to be kept at the luggage in the Manchester station. Something that Myra would say adamantly, she never knew anything that was in there. We're going to find out later. That's a lie. They also made sure to have a strong alibi for each day of the murders. This is something that was very important. He would make sure that it was something that they could easily remember if they were questioned like, you know, several weeks later, they would go to the movies. So they'd have a movie ticket stub. So I just want to throw in there that, again, these are all moments that Myra, if a victim of all of this, mm-hmm. could have gotten out or yeah. could have chosen to leave or say, hey, this doesn't feel right to me. We're planning yeah. in detail the murders of children. And so all opportunities for her to escape. Even if he was dangerous, if if he really was, as we'll get into later with her claims, but still opportunities for her to go to the police to get help, something, but nope. You are 100% correct, because they planned these for, this for months. I mean, he wrote out documents. Oh, yeah, these are very detailed plans. Yeah, she was as into it as he was, okay? Now, here we are back on July 12th, 1963, and the two set out to find their first victim. They did not have a victim in mind ever, you guys. They would pick them out on the fly just by going out and looking. That almost gives me chills too because it's like... It's creepier, isn't it? You know, not that planning it is any better, but it's just like on that random day, these poor children just were targeted on a whim and... They are 100% predators Mm -hmm. just out for the hunt and it's disgusting for their first victim myra was driving a black borrowed van that they borrowed from the neighbor and ian was behind her on his motorcycle and they'd have a system where ian would either flash his lights if he saw somebody that he was interested in and myra would slow down and and approach that child or if myra saw somebody that she was interested in, she'd slow down and he'd flash his lights to say, yeah, let's go for it. So they've got, again, very planned out. It just makes me sick. They also put fake plates on both of the vehicles. Did they? Yeah, and I just hate that Ian is intelligent. So they're driving down Gordon Lane, and initially, Brady sees an eight-year-old girl and flashes his lights. Myra recognized the girl as her mother's neighbor's child. And did not slow down. Well, Ian's pissed, so he has her pull over a little bit later and was like, what are you doing? I wanted that girl. And she's like, um, no, she's eight and I know her. First rule, right? We can't have any Any connections. And then she also was like, I also don't think that we should go after an eight-year-old because that's going to cause more attention. As oh. if, as if an older missing child doesn't yeah, we need cause an older a child. Like parents are like, that one was 12. We've we done raised him, so we don't care that he's missing. Can you imagine off, like you them bickering about it? Like, no, we need an older child. Yeah, and right. oh, God, I hate them <laughs> so much. So that girl, the eight year old girl, was Mary Ruck, and I am sure that now with all this information coming out, her parents and her are just so eternally grateful. Can for you the imagine fact. No. knowing that? Oh no. my gosh! No, I would never let her out of the house again. No. So the two end up on Froxmer Street. And now they're tired of driving around, so they just wait. And unfortunately, their first victim ends up walking down the street on her way to a dance. Here's where we get into details. Please feel free to skip ahead if you don't want to hear about it. For the children's sake, I will never give gruesome details unless necessary to their conviction or what their stories were and the evidence, okay? She was dark-haired, 
She had blue eyes. She was beautiful 16-year-old Pauline Reed. She was wearing a pink and gold skirt, a black shirt, and a cardigan, and a blue, like, stylish coat that had a belt. She was on her way to a dance, like I said, so she had new white shoes on that she had just gotten that day. The dance was only 10 minutes away from her home. It wasn't a school dance. It was at a business, okay? Mm -hmm. So initially, her mom had said, no, she's not going to go, because it started off where a group of her friends were all going to go, and her mom's like, sure. Well, then some other moms were like, no, you're not going because that place sells alcohol. It's a business. And so then Pauline's mom was like, no, 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 your friends aren't going. You're not going. Well, Pauline begged her and convinced her, let me go. Let me go meet my friends because there was a couple other friends that she knew were going to be there. Right. So later her mom, of course, really regrets all of this, but yeah, she did. Because she was originally, mm-hmm. you know, not going to so go. told her no. Yeah. So her mom decides, okay, you can go ahead and go. She gets ready. Her mom gave Pauline her favorite locket to wear to complete her outfit. And that's important for later. Pauline was very close with her family, especially her brother, Paul. She was a good kid. She got good grades and she was overall a sweetheart. On the way to the dance, Pauline ran into her best friend, Pat Cummings, who was one of the friends that initially could not go. But Pat wanted to surprise Pauline. Oh. Yeah. So when they ran into each other, Pauline was still pretending like, oh, shucks, my mom said I couldn't go. And But really, Pat's like, I'm just going to take another way. And then when Pauline gets there, surprise, oh, I'm here. My heart. I know. All right. So just knowing that information, you know, starts to wreck your, your soul. It really does because, you know, I remember my first school dance, even though I sat on the sidelines the whole time. (laughs) Of course. But I was still so excited. (laughs) Right. And that excitement of just going and Mm -hmm. getting dressed up and, you know, your family's excited. And it's just a big thing. It's just so heart wrenching. When Pauline did not show up, they actually were not that worried. Like Pat wasn't that worried because Pauline was actually very shy. Her friends were really surprised that she was still willing to go, even though a major group of them weren't going. They're like, wow, Pauline really put put herself out there. Right. So when Pat is there and like, wait, I just saw Pauline walking here. She's like, she must have realized, oh, wow, I'm really, you know, my friends really aren't going. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to go back home. So initially, no one realizes that Pauline's not at the dance. The other important note that family and friends said about her was that she was really cautious around strangers and never would have gotten into a car with a stranger. So how the hell does she end up with Myra Hindley and Ian Brady? Well, it's because Myra ignored rule number one. Pauline knew Myra. Pauline went to school with Maureen, Myra's younger sister. And at this time, Maureen was only 17. As if that's not bad enough, Myra's dad and Pauline's dad used to hang out at the pub together. Myra had interactions with Pauline's mother prior to this. So when Myra pulled up in the black van and asks for help locating her expensive glove that she supposedly lost in the moors, Pauline had no problem getting into the van because she wasn't a stranger. Yeah, she knew her. She's like, okay, I'll help you. Yep. They got to the moors and Ian walks up from his motorcycle and they start looking for this random glove. Myra had assured Pauline that Ian, oh yeah, he's my friend. He's going to help us look too. As part of their plan, when it was time to move forward with their intentions, Brady would raise his ugly ass eyebrows at Myra like, letting him know, I'm ready. That was their signal. Ew. They had this secret little language between the two of them. Isn't that so cute? <sighs> so Ian gives her the signal and grabs a hold of Pauline and takes her to the ground. Pauline is looking at Myra, begging her to tell Ian to stop. Myra undresses her, and in the book by Dr. Keatley, Ian said that Pauline kept saying to Myra that she was not well, And it was in an attempt to stop the rape that she knew was about to happen. Ian, being a dumbass, didn't know what that meant. So he's like, whoa, whoa, Myra, what does she mean? She's not well. So Myra spelled it out for him. was like, she's on her period. Well, obviously, that's not going to stop sick pedophile motherfuckers. So he was like, oh, okay, as long as it's not syphilis or something, then we'll proceed. They both rape her. Myra held her down while Ian raped her. So, again... She's just as guilty. Oh, absolutely. Ian goes to the van where he had previously planted a bag that would have the things that they'd need. And when he comes back, 
Myra had beat the living shit out of Pauline. Ian's like, what the fuck? Why? She was. She had a big goose egg. She was bleeding. She had a big goose egg on her head. Oh my Remember, gosh. she was trained to box by her dad. So then Myra rips the necklace off from Pauline and told her that she was not going to need it where she was going. Ian becomes enraged because part of his sadistic jollies is for the victim to not know that they were going to kill them. Then the two start arguing. And can you fucking imagine? This child sitting there. Right, laying on the ground naked, helpless, and these two idiots start fighting. Mm -hmm. She had to have been like, oh my god, what's about to happen? I hope they kill each other, Mm -hmm. you know? Then Ian bitch slaps Myra across the face, which didn't make her any prettier, just so you know. Now Myra's pissed. So they sit in silence, in the dark, in these moors, these creepy-ass Moors, I'm sorry, they are beautiful. If you're from there, I'm not dogging the moors. They are beautiful. In the book, Ian got all, like, poetic about how the silence was so heavy and all this stuff. I'm like, what the fuck ever, dude? You were just staring at each other because you were pissed off at one another. And that's when Myra lays a doozy on him and confesses, this is Pauline Reed. Ian Brady knows that name from Maureen, Myra's sister, like I said before. And in Ian's, his theories are that He realizes as he hears the name Pauline Reed, he's remembering he took pictures because he really liked photography, Mm -hmm. which comes back later. But he took pictures of Maureen and there was this big conversation about how pissed off Maureen was because her boyfriend, David Smith, remember he is the author of one of our references that we use today. Her boyfriend, David Smith, had been seen talking to Pauline Reed. After this photo shoot, Myra actually wanted to kill David Smith. And Ian's like, no, we can't just go killing people because we're pissed off at them. We have, we don't, they were just talking. We don't have any evidence that David was trying to put a move on Pauline. They're all friends, right? Like they were just seen talking to each other. Slow your roll, Myra. And also we can't kill people we're connected with. So in Ian's point of view, at this moment when she lays the bomb on him that their victim here is Pauline Reed. He's like, motherfucker, she played me. She picked so her that was like that was Myra's kind of sick way of saying, like, by the way, yeah. this is somebody that we know. Yep. Fuck rule number one. So she's trying, you know, she's messing this up from the beginning. And also she picked, I agree with Ian. She picked Pauline. She knew all along she knew Pauline. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. She wanted this revenge because... He, Pauline was talking to David Smith. This isn't sounding like um, she's the a, actions of a victim no, to me. No, she's a child. This is this is a child. She is such an immature piece of dog shit. Actually, dog shit isn't even that bad of a term. That's for a higher, it higher is. standard than it is. what what she is. And apparently it's really good because my dogs eat their shit all the time. So <laughs> Mine did I def- too. It must be a delicacy for them. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Don't knock so it she's not it. even I don't dog know. shit. She's not even dog shit. I'm, it's a treat to I have I am it. sorry that I just made that comparison. Now that Ian knows that Myra has violated rule number one of this fucked up fight club that they have, he takes the knife that he had planted in the bag in the van and cuts Pauline's throat. The cut was not deep enough to sever her carotid artery. He had to take a second knife, which he had actually strapped earlier in the, the beginning Um, of the evening onto his arm and he ends up cutting her throat to the point where he severed her spinal cord and nearly decapitated her. She did die instantly. The coroner's report later said that Pauline's blue coat was pushed into her wound purposefully to stop the bleeding after she had died because remember Ian Brady was very meticulous about their cleanup efforts. Nothing could be left. So the less blood, the less mess that they had to worry about. And it was that's an important part in their trial like to show just how much he thought this through. Yeah. Mm They had previously hit a shovel in the moors the day before, right where they knew they were going to take their first victim. So they used that shovel to bury Pauline Reed. The moors are made of a lot of peat moss, so it's easy to disrupt the earth without making it look like you disrupted the earth. They wanted to return later to take photographs, something that they do with every single one of their victims. They return later and take family photos with their dog over the grave Oh, sites. I know. Some of the, the pictures mm-hmm. just absolutely disgust me. They're smiling with the dog. You know, oh, we're out here in the moors. And they think that they're just being so sly because they have this secret that nobody knows about. And I do bring that up in, in a little while. But they counted their steps back to the car so that they'd know how many steps to take to, so they could to go be back. on her grave. And as if all that's not sick enough. After each murder, Ian would buy Myra a record to represent the murder. 
And when they wanted to remember the murder, even if they were in the company of others, one of them would just start humming the song, and then they would both just look at each other and relive whatever murder that song went with. <sighs> and I won't tell you the names of each song because I don't want to ruin these. Yeah, songs we for don't want to ruin the songs. Just know that there were five murders, and he bought five records, <sighs> and this is what they would do: just start humming it. I feel like we need to start putting clips of my face up in the um, Instagram to show my reactions of horror because I'm disgusted. I agree. I'm sure it's the same face that every listener just made, like complete scrunched up. Yeah, so when they saw it, they'd uh, be like, oh, that's oh, yeah, how I was looking exactly too. That's exactly how I look. And I just hate that they're making music yucky. Yeah, it's like a little sentimental gift for every murder. Fuck faces. They went on with their regular lives. Ian wrote some poetic shit about how they had sex that night and just he didn't even like her so it couldn't have been good i'm just saying (laughs) Uh, it was for her but not for him jokes on you ian well i have a funny little tidbit about that their sex wasn't like typical sex like even it's not even like typical kinky sex he liked to make people bleed he would like kiss you i remember until you bite yeah or until you bleed excuse me he liked that kind of aggressive thing but he also had enough affinity for having candlesticks put up his ass. <laughs> Wait, I, I'm on. sorry, I was not prepared for I know. that. Yes, that's what we're dealing with here. And once I read that tidbit, I didn't care to dive any deeper into that poop yeah. hole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have rabbit holes and we have, and we have poop holes that we don't want yeah, to explore. I stayed far, far away from that. Once Thank I read you. that, I was like, oh, okay, and we're done here. I'll just make a note that they had unusual... They like to bring things into yes. the bedroom. And I we'll leave it at that. I used to teach at a local college during my abnormal psychology courses. We would talk about abnormal sexuality. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a lot of typical things and there's a lot of atypical things that that happen. And I'm just gonna go ahead and put him into a, a very disturbed sexual I mean, obviously we know he's a sexual sadist because of the pedophilia yes. and, and the torture and what he ends up doing to these victims. But even in his regular day to day normal sexual activity mm-hmm. is not normal. Right. So he afterwards likes, he was like, Hey babe, get the candlesticks. It's gonna be yes. we'll and, celebrate. And from what I can tell, I mean like you guys, you do you. There's all kinds of kinky stuff when you've got two consenting adults, that's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, S and M, like whatever, you do you. Because mm-hmm. again, Two consenting adults. That is the key. That's what keeps it into the normal sexuality type of realm. But when you deviate and you start forcing and you start, obviously, with minors and there's not consent, now you've deviated. And and he, just from the get-go, had abnormal sexual Mm -hmm. tendencies. Where my mind's going now, too, is just the thought of these two going home, celebrating, whatever... This child is murdered, and what the family was going through at that that time. You it know, is interesting she didn't come home. That you say that. Were you reading ahead in my notes? I, I talk am about half this. blind, so I can't even see your notes. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I cannot make out a word from here. I really need to increase the font because I'm struggling to see my notes as well. I'm getting us. I'm investing in a monitor for us. I but must anyway, just be asking all the right questions. You are and you making know, the right statement. You know where to naturally go with this. Pauline's disappearance was all in the press, and Myra even had the audacity to tell Pauline's mother that she was sorry. And this is something that, because they don't find out until decades later. Because her murder wasn't discovered at the beginning. So (sighs) when Pauline's mom makes this connection later, and she's like, that That fucking bitch. Yeah. Yeah. She had the audacity to tell me that she was sorry. Mm -hmm. Which goes back again to killers often wanting to be involved in their own Mm -hmm. cases. Yes. Yes, yes. Also, not the work of somebody who didn't want to be doing it. Mm -hmm. Now, I want you guys to know that Myra removes herself from every single murder. Myra claims to be a victim as well, and she spends her whole life trying to get out of prison. Amber will cover that part. So what her claim was is that she never heard or saw anything. She was just a battered and abused woman. And we're going to see that she's a liar, liar, pants on fire, Myra. It is hard, too, because, you know, there's different versions of even with this 
murder what happened because when she's going back and explaining things, she makes it sound like she waited in the car while he went out and and murdered this child. Hearing this side of it, it's a whole different perspective. And and she did that with every one. Like, oh, I was in the other room. I was was drawing a bath. Like, there's so many Mm -hmm. different excuses that she tries to play off. Like, she had no part in these things. I just dropped the kids off with Ian and then it was weird. I'd leave for 30 minutes and when I came back... Oh, he killed another one. Yeah. Yeah. So the two just carry on for a while until November 23rd, 1963, so only four months after Pauline. The pair decide that it's time for their next victim, but they decide with Myra's outrageous bleached hair that she should disguise herself. And I think it was just Ian's attempt to try to, like, get her to look better for a minute. I don't know. Your hair's gotta go. Yeah. So she starts wearing black wigs with a different hairstyle and made her appearance look different, which, if you look at pictures, though, I feel like it made her appearance look more like her sister. Mm, Yeah, I could see that. He would even tell Myra that Maureen was more attractive than her and that he liked her. Like, he found her more attractive, so. Which I'm sure for her being so desperate that that was a hard blow. Um, I would think so. Hey, just so you know, your sister's way better looking than you. Your sister's way hotter. Yeah, I I don't think that that was received well. Their next child victim would be 12-year-old John Kilbride. And when you guys see the pictures of these kids, it's going to break your soul because it is the worst part. They are beautiful children. They purposely picked somebody younger than time, not only because they're pedophiles, but also because they'd fight less. Ian had an issue with how hard Pauline fought for her own life and how hard she was to hold down. So they decide on somebody younger. They go to the market in Ashton Underlane. It was not uncommon for kids to be there unattended at this time. And John was actually there earning some pocket money by helping stall holders, which are like shopkeepers. That's something that him and his friends did often. Mm Mm-hmm. He was wearing a white shirt and a pair of gray slacks, a jacket with football-shaped buttons, and an old vest of his dad's that his mama had sewn to fit him. John was super cutie pie, like I said. He was very close to his six siblings and was a very helpful and sweet boy. He was well-loved, especially at school as well. Earlier in that day, he had been to the movies with friends, and then they all decided to go to the market to make some extra money. When Brady and Hindley came upon John, he was wearing... I'm sorry, he was sitting on a bench eating like a little biscuit or something like that that one of the shopkeepers had given him. Myra and Ian told him that they were parents themselves and convinced him that it was super late for a child to be out. It was only about 5.30. So they offered to drive him back home so that his parents would not be worried. They used his parents against him. One of the things that always gets me, and every time you look over at these parts, I'm like, I know. Getting so emotional. I know. I can see the tears in your um, eyes. I'm trying not to look at you because then I'll start crying. These children were just doing like children things yes. when they living their lives as kids. And that I think that's the, the part that breaks my heart the most is they were just being innocently doing things as kids. And these fuckers just randomly select like, oh, that one. And how they get them. They prey upon the fact that children like to please adults. Mm-hmm. Oh, you need help? I will help you. Mm -hmm. They completely prey upon the innocence of the children. Now, on the way, they tell him that they're going to make a detour to help Myra find her glove, like they did with Pauline. But they also said that if he helps them look for the glove, then they'd give him a bottle of sherry for his parents as a thank you. So this little guy who was described as being, I mean, he helped take care of his siblings. Yeah. He was super helpful. hes He thinks he's doing a good thing and that he's going to bring his parents a bottle of sherry. Mm-hmm. Now, later after his disappearance, his family still set a plate out for him every night while he was missing. Oh, my goodness. I know. And they bought him gifts uh, for his birthday still because they just were hoping that he, if he returned, you know, what if he returned at dinner time and they didn't have a place set? They didn't want him thinking, well, you, you yeah, already cut me out. Or with his birthday that mm-hmm. they had forgotten that, it. Yep. They didn't have presents. So... Did you guys just hear my soul shatter? Because I'm pretty sure it just did. Now, remember that they have everything planned out for what they would do when they found their victim. And they did that for every single victim that they had. At this point, Ian, John, and Myra go walking into the moors. There are two different accounts of what took place depending on what book you read and who is if inter- if Myra was being interviewed or if Ian was. I'll let you guys just figure out what you want to believe on your own. Ian said that they were walking into the moors. John was scared. And he gave the signal on three separate occasions, you know, the eyebrow raise, before Hindley was actually ready to do what they came to do. They took him to the ground. John fought like hell. Ian raped him while Myra held him down. And then Ian strangled him with a cord that he had in his pocket. And then they both buried him. Myra's version is very different. She says that she dropped them off 
drove around to the other side of the moors, as was supposedly their plan, and she waited 30 minutes exactly. Then she came back 30 minutes later, and she flashed her headlights. Then the signal was that he would then flash his flashlight three times, giving her the, okay, everything went okay, now you can approach. And that when she approached Ian, he was a mess, and he had a small shoe in his hands. So that's how she tries to remove herself from the murder of John Kilbride. And let me just add that even her version is still disgusting because it's still a detailed plan of her knowing what's happening. And even though she wasn't saying that she wasn't present for it, Mm -hmm. she's still very much involved. When asked about this, like, well, this is what Myra's saying. It's like, why would I ever have his shoe? I didn't keep anything. They do, but not from the victims. The victims. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other reason why I do not believe Myra in this instance is because she went into detail about putting a rifle in the front seat because apparently the two had really started getting hard-ons for guns. They never used one in any of the murders, but they would go like shooting like for fun, which is not unusual in our area. That doesn't sound crazy to us. No, not at all. do that. I I have done that even actually my kids are on the trap shooting team (laughs) at our high school. So she says that she put this rifle in the front seat. And later, Brady was like, "Mm, no, because the rifle that she's talking about wasn't bought for a year later. So they went and looked up the receipt records, and And Brady was telling the truth. He was telling the truth. So that gun didn't even exist for them yet. So they clean up her Brady's checklist, and the next week at work, the two lapped it up that the media were talking about this sweet boy's disappearance. He loves the glory, and he's gobbling it all up, but the news starts to spread that they're starting to search the moors. Myra is kind of shitting her granny panties at this point. They end up going... (laughs) I'd like to think they were an ugly beige pair. They were. There was nothing flattering about them. They end up going to the moors more frequently to ensure that nothing's been disturbed, to kind of give Mm -hmm. them a heads up if they had started getting close. Mm -hmm. And if you don't already hate them enough, now is your chance to really hate them because Brady also shared with Dr. Alan Keatley that he would sit outside of the family's homes of their victims just with... Myra, just to picture the chaos and horror that the families were going Stop through. Stop it. Can I, can I, I get even, my coat? Because I... You cannot. No, again, a you, snippet I didn't know. You oh signed goodness. on for this. I'm sorry. So they enjoyed knowing that these families were in yep. absolute agony and chaos, losing their children, and they wanted to see it. Yep. And so they just sat outside their homes relishing in it. And then they also went to John's grave on New Year's and toasted to him. <gasps> yeah. There aren't two more disgusting people that were ever <sighs> I on guess this I should earth. exhale. I was like <laughs> you were I couldn't breathe. I was like, time. oh wait. I should probably do, <laughs> do that. Don't pass I'm out. I'm just on so me. disgusted. On June sixteenth, nineteen sixty four, they saw twelve year old Keith Bennett walking to his grandmother's home. He was wearing a blue t shirt and jeans and a white leather jacket. He, too, was a flipping cutie pie, Oh, my guys. gosh. Keith is so oh. precious with his glasses. And I know. His big glasses. It just shattered my heart to see his little face. Uh-huh. And- he also had a lot of siblings. He was one of six. Mm-hmm. He was close to his family. He loved football, the outdoors, bugs, all the great things that 12-year-olds love. He also had just had a birthday. So he's barely, I mean, he's... Just 12. Yeah. Mm-hmm. His mom was seven months pregnant. And she actually ended up having the baby early because of stress. The stress. Mm -hmm. The baby was okay, but still. Now, here's where we get two more renditions, you guys. Ian claims that he was not even in the car when Myra picked Keith up. He says he was waiting on another street. He got into the vehicle after Myra, Myra had already picked Keith up. They went to the moors, and they went three miles into the moors. He said Keith was worried and was saying his grandma was going to worry about him. Myra had the shovel with them as they had always like planted one the day before, but it was in a plastic bag so that it didn't look like a shovel. But Ian said that he could tell that Keith was getting suspicious and worried and nervous. But Ian got off on fear like this, so it's hard to tell whether or not that was just his interpretation to help feed this fantasy for him. Mm -hmm. It's, It's hard to say. Ian said that he started whistling, When You Wish Upon a Star as his cue to Myra that he was ready. Oh, my gosh. Their little secret That's languages. so eerie and so creepy. planned out and disgusting. He grabbed Keith by the throat. He raped him while Myra held him down and then strangled him with his bare hands, also while Myra held him down. The two buried him and put a rock over his grave as a marker because they had went three miles in. Keith has never been found. Brady knows where he is. I know he does. And he refuses to tell. 
even to his dying day, Mm -hmm. he wouldn't tell. They returned, you guys, many times to take pictures of themselves, like fun family pictures over these graves. So I know he knows where that grave is. I I believe that he does too. And we'll Mm -hmm. talk more about that later on. There's no doubt that he knows where that grave is. Now, Myra claims that they picked Keith up and she asked him to help him unload some boxes. He said, sure. And he got into the passenger side because in her rendition, Brady was in the back seat, which doesn't make sense to me. Why is he in the back seat? And Keith wasn't like, what's this dude here? Mm -hmm. And then supposedly Ian asked Keith to come into the back seat and he does. And then Brady's like, my lady's got this missing glove. Are you willing to help us? We're going to go out to the moors because they they don't live far from the moors. It's not like this is like really far fetched Mm -hmm. for kids to be like, sure, I'll go help you look in the moors. And so then that's how they get there. She claims that she dropped them off where Ian wanted, and then she drove away for 40 minutes like she was told to. And when she came back, Ian was all ragged and dirty and was out of breath. And And again, she's like, oh, what happened? Yeah. And then Ian told Myra, I raped the child and I strangled him. And that he also took a photo. So she claims that she has nothing to do with this, but she saw the photo. Okay, Mm -hmm. because later when they go find that luggage and whatnot, her fingerprints are all over the photos. Mm -hmm. She went back and looked at the fucking photos, reliving it. Mm -hmm. But this was her trying to say, yeah, he showed me the photo right then and there. That's why my fingerprints were on that photo. Now, Keith was not initially recognized as a missing person because his grandmother did not have a phone. So when Keith didn't come, she just figured that he was staying with his parents. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it took it, a while. It was for the th- next morning when mom was like, where's Keith? Mm-hmm. And grandma's like, what are you talking about? He was with you all night. Yeah. Aww. And they had no idea he was already been murdered. Now we're going to get into what I feel like is the worst murder because they really escalate um, from this point. They became bored. Ian even talked about how they got bored. So they kind of had to just kick they it up They wanted to kick it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I, I don't know if we've talked about it before, but typically how this happens is with serial killers, especially they have this fantasy. I think I have mentioned this before. They have this fantasy. And when they commit their murder to satisfy that fantasy and it doesn't fit everything specifically like they want, it escalates until they reach that point of the high that they were looking for in that fantasy, which is really quite unattainable. So it, escalation is often it's like a chasing part of the this. high. So in, in this one, they really change things up. Go refill your glass, you guys, or a new get a new bottle of whatever it is that you're coping with, because this one hurts. On Boxing Day in the UK, which is December 26, 1964, Leslie Ann Downing was a beautiful, beautiful 10-year-old girl. She had curly brown hair and brown eyes. Her photo's going to make your heart melt. She could have been a child model. She really looked like a baby doll, oh, like with the curls and the... Yeah, she was adorable. Just precious. She was wearing a red tartan dress with a pink cardigan. And she was also wearing a necklace that she had just gotten the day before from her older brother, Terry. Why are all these people, like, wearing something significant? I know. I just... I know. Well, on Boxing Day, the kids wanted to go to the fair. And Terry was actually supposed to take... Um, Leslie, but he came down with the flu. So the neighbor, Mrs. Clark was like, no problem. I, I'm going to take my kids and I will take them and, and her little brother, Tommy. Okay. Leslie's little brother, Tommy. So she's like, not a problem. She even reassured the mom, I'm going to keep close eye on them. They'll be fine. Then at the last minute, Mrs. Clark decides she's not going And she sent the kids alone without an adult and did not tell Leslie's parents. Leslie ended up staying at the fair even though the other kids were, like, ready to go home. They're like, okay, we've spent all of our money, whatever. We're ready to go. Leslie wanted to stay and see more things. So now they they leave. These other kids just leave, including her little brother, Tommy. They, mm-hmm. took, they took him back home. And so now Leslie is just walking around alone. And it's a small town in 1964. Although history tells us that at this point in time, there's a lot of serial killers out because I feel yeah, like... That was a dark time, it was, but... We've done a lot of cases where it's like, oh gosh, in the 60s, okay. But you know, small town, 70s. I mean, mm-hmm. even around here, you, kids are walking yes. around. I mean, they I do. personally wouldn't no. allow mine, but in general, people do that. We have I mean, a much different jaded perspective on the do. world, though, than <laughs> I think most people do. But I do see kids, even at our local fair, which is uh-huh, a shit all the time. show sometimes. Oh, it's... it's <laughs> something but yeah you see kids running around all the time yeah when i was a kid i ran around at the fair oh yeah yeah i was never allowed to do anything like that but remember i lived in the country and my parents were like people Mm -hmm. are horrible don't 
Yeah. You, I wasn't allowed to do stuff like that. Myra said that she dressed in her damn costume that I'm sure Ian preferred when they saw Leslie. She um, staged, like, a fake box dropping and asked Leslie to help them carry the boxes to their car. So, of course, she does this because she's a sweet little angel. Once they're at the car, she's like, my house is really close. Can you help me bring them to my house? And, of course, Leslie, Aww, you know, a She's trying to girl, help. Right. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, and I'll, then I'll take you home after that. Ian said that he was already in the car when Myra brought Leslie to the car. Myra says no. Ian was a full part of the fake box dropping and needing help with the boxes thing. They did not take Leslie to the moors initially like the other victims. And this one's about to get really bad, so trigger warning. They took her to Myra's house, and that that she shared with her gran, but gran was gone for, for the afternoon, okay? The only reason that investigators know exactly what happened to Leslie is because there is an audio recording of the last 16 minutes of Leslie Ann Downing's life. Not only did the investigators have to listen to it, but so did the jury, which traumatized everyone. That recording is not released to the public, but her parents had to listen to it in order to identify her, which is probably the worst thing I've ever had to say out loud. I, th- I think it's the, one of the worst parts of this of this case, because I can't imagine as a parent having to, to hear that yeah. and to verify that it's your child being... Yep. Raped and tortured and about to to die. Just so you guys know, if you start looking into this, there are some transcripts of that recording. I don't think a full transcript has been released to the public, but there are snippets. I am not going to read you a majority of the those transcripts. Um, I'm just going to paint the picture for you. I will tell you a couple of quotes of what she was saying, but I don't want you guys to be traumatized. You can do that on your own. If you want to look it up, it's there. Unfortunately, Amber read some of it, and I think this was the point where you said, can you please handle yeah, the Yeah, I, I came across, and I was, I mean, there's so many, so many things to look at with this case. So I had come across the, um, it's a play-by-play of what Ian said, and what Myra said, and what Leslie had said, and um, it's pretty horrific. And so I would advise if you are sensitive to these things, which I will admit that I am, mm-hmm. it's not worth it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take the time to read it. The reason that they, that this is so important is because in the trial, this is what they use to show that Myra was as bad and evil of a person as Ian, if yeah. not worse. So it did play a key piece in all of this, but it's still just, it's so horrible. In the audio, you can hear Leslie Ann Downing begging for her life. At one point, she's begging for God to help her. She cries out several times for her mom. She is screaming. She is crying. They're trying to gag her and, and they're screaming at her to shut up because they can't get the gag in. Myra did more talking than Ian. She was hitting her and threatening her the entire time, even though Myra tried to claim that she was not even looking at what was happening because there was a window open the whole time. So she kept focusing on that window, afraid that people would hear the child screaming. Yeah, I remember seeing that was an excuse of hers that yeah. she was, wasn't was a part of it. She was staring out the window the whole time. Yeah. Keatley and his Dr. Keatley points out like, I'm sorry, but with as careful of a planner as they were, they didn't leave a window open. Yeah. She also claimed that she was running a bath for her. Oh, we were going to run a bath for her. Bitch, please. Uh, just, it's disgusting. Like, like you're a caretaker? Like you just abducted her and you're oh, going to rape her and you're going to relax gonna let, and take yeah, a bath. You're going to let Ian rape her, but then you're going to bathe her in a, in a gentle caretaking sort of way? No. She her lies are worse than a three year old. I was just lies. gonna say, did she get diagnosed with like as a compulsive no, liar? It's, I don't. I don't believe she's so. just so all over the if place. If she did, I didn't stumble upon that. So if somebody knows that, feel free to. It let just us seems know. Li- to be lie after lie with her. Yeah, manipulation I after. Agree. Yeah, can't give you all the details because I wouldn't be able to get through it. But she was tied up. She was stripped, and she was forced to pose for photographs. She said, and I quote, don't don't undress me, will you? I want to see my mommy. Ian tells a slightly different story. He claims that it was Myra who strangled Leslie and the cord that she used, she would take places with her and just get it out of her pocket and play with it. And she loved that no one else knew what that cord was, but it was the cord that, that strangled her. Wow. Mm-hmm. Myra did run a bath. Ian says that is true, but it was part of their forensic checklist. They ran a bath to clean the body oh, and to clean things okay. up. Okay, well, mm-hmm. that's a big difference. 
yeah. with what Myra was saying. None yes. of the their stories line up no, with any I of know. these. No, I know. That's what's ridiculous. They buried Leslie and Downey's body near Pauline's grave in the moors. She was buried naked with her clothing on top of her and the necklace that Terry had given her the day before. Terry really struggled with extreme guilt for the rest of his life. Oh, I can't imagine because he was... getting the flu. It was not yeah, his fault. He, he was going to take flu. her and maybe this wouldn't have happened. I can't yeah. imagine the guilt he's lived with. Yeah. As usual, they continue to go to all the graves and take photos and put those photos in regular family albums in their house for friends to look through. And they got off on the fact that their friends were just there like, here, here's our trip in <sighs> and it's January so disturbing. to But when you see the pictures, if you didn't know, they do look like just they're out taking yeah. fun pictures yeah. of each other, it, you know, just a normal day. And I am, I mean, honestly, I'm glad that they did that because investigator, as much as it hurts me to say that, but investigators were able to use those photos yes. to help locate the bodies yes so it did backfire it did backfire on them right now at this point i want to give you a little update on maureen remember she's myra's sister now she's married to david smith and they have a little girl and he's the dude that pauline was chatting with and it enraged myra they're married they have a child david did say that myra and ian did not give a shit about their kid at all myra never held the baby the baby ended up dying of bronchitis and they were devastated yeah that's terrible yep So at this point, they start to spend more time with Ian and Myra, and Ian and Myra even brought them to the moors to, you guessed it, the graves, that Mm -hmm. these poor people had no no idea. Mm -hmm. They're taking pictures. Here we are. Ian, this whole time, has still been a thief. I haven't really mentioned it, but there it is. He's still getting his rocks off, just breaking and entering and profiting off of that. And now he wants to get David involved in this fucked up shit. David initially politely declined. I don't do that. Not my gig. Mm-hmm. I don't break into things and whatever. And then all of a sudden, Ian's like, oh, you don't like robbery. How about murder? David again's like, uh, no, dude. He just kind of chalked it up to they were drinking, you know, they're in a pub, whatever. Ian tells him that he's murdered children before. It's like, you probably won't believe me, but I've had me three or four of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do remember reading that, that David, um, later when he testifies, was like, he did, like, joke, mm-hmm. quote, he was kind of joking about murdering children and, and did disclose that yeah. to David. So yeah. it's also, it becomes a key piece. It does. It becomes a key piece. And I think that that is where we're going to leave you for this part one. So they've got four victims. Amber is going to pick up with part two to tell about the last victim and then their trial and the rest of their lives. The fucked up shit that Myra tries to pull Mm -hmm. because it gets insane of the stuff that she does. And that'll be a really, really good episode too. So we don't like to keep you guys too long. And plus everybody needs a break. They do. You know, I think so. From all of that. So. I think so. So yeah, feel free to send us an email at crimecurious at yahoo.com. We like case suggestions. You can follow us on Facebook, Crime Curious Podcast, Instagram, crime.curious, on Twitter, Curious Crime. And we also have our website where you can subscribe to get our uh, an update whenever we re- release an episode, www.crimecuriouspodcast.com. We will pick up... And yeah. just so you know, we will release both of these episodes together so you're not waiting days in make, suspense. Make sure you go, you know, treat yourself to like a Valentine's Day gift or something, something. after this. Wine um, and chocolate. Yeah, just to lighten things a little yeah, bit. For sure. And I don't have a brain bath for this one. I felt like it was a little bit inappropriate. We can do mm-hmm. one at the end of part two. Oh, rest assured. Okay. I have one for you. Good, good, good. All right. Carry on to part two, guys. Bye, guys. Bye.